Your ability to develop the habit of self-discipline will contribute more to your success than any other quality of character. Some years ago, I met a man named Kopp Kopmeyer, a noted success authority who had discovered 1,000 success principles, which he had published in four books containing 250 principles each. I asked him which of these 1,000 principles he considered to be the most important. He said immediately that it was self-discipline. He described self-discipline as the ability to make yourself do what you should do, when you should do it, whether you feel like it or not. Napoleon Hill, after interviewing 500 of the richest people in America, concluded that self-discipline is the master key to riches. Al Tomsick, the famous sales trainer, said that success is tons of discipline. Jim Rohn said that discipline weighs ounces, but regret weighs tons. Dr. Edward Banfield of Harvard concluded that long-time perspective was the key to upward social and economic mobility in America or anywhere else in the world. He discovered in 50 years of research that people who succeeded greatly had the ability to think long-term, to delay gratification in the short term so that they could enjoy even greater rewards in the long term. They thought 10 and 20 years into the future while making decisions for their current actions. The key word here is sacrifice. Discipline requires the ability for you to sacrifice immediate pleasure or gratification in the present so that you can enjoy greater rewards down the road. Albert Einstein once said that compound interest is the most powerful force in the universe. This is why saving and investing in the present is the first key to becoming financially successful in the future. Self-discipline means self-control, self-mastery, and the ability to have dinner before dessert. It doesn't mean that you don't have pleasurable experiences in life, but it means that you have them after you have done the hard and necessary work and completed your key tasks. The payoff for practicing self-discipline is immediate. Whenever you discipline yourself and force yourself to do the right thing, whether you feel like it or not, you like and respect yourself more. Your self-esteem increases. Your self-image improves. Your brain releases endorphins, which make you feel happy and proud. You actually get a payoff every time you hold your own feet to the fire. The best part is that self-discipline is a habit that you can learn with practice and repetition. It takes approximately 21 days of repetition, without exception, to develop a habit of medium complexity. Sometimes you can develop a habit faster, and sometimes it will take longer. It depends on you and how determined you are. Some years ago, a businessman, Herbert Gray, began searching for what he called the common denominator of success. He researched and interviewed successful people for 11 years and finally concluded that successful people are those who make a habit of doing what unsuccessful people don't like to do. And what are these things that unsuccessful people don't like to do? Well, it turns out successful people don't like to do them either, but they do them anyway because they realize that they are the price of success. Rich DeVos, the founder of Amway, once said that there are lots of things in life that you don't like to do, like prospecting, selling, and building your business in the evenings and weekends, but you do them anyway so that you can do the things that you really enjoy later on. It turns out that every exercise of self-discipline strengthens every other discipline at the same time. 
just as every weakness in self-discipline weakens you in other disciplines as well. There are nine disciplines you can develop that will improve every area of your life. And the first is called the discipline of clear thinking. Thomas Edison once said that thinking is the hardest discipline of all, which is why so few people do it. It has been said that there are three types of people. There are those who think, the small minority. There are those who think they think. And then there are those who would rather die than think. So take some time to think through the critical issues and problems in your life today. Put aside long, unbroken chunks of time, 30, 60, and even 90 minutes. Peter Drucker said that fast people decisions are usually wrong people decisions. In addition, fast decisions with regard to your family, career, money, or any other major issue are usually wrong decisions as well. Sit quietly for 30 to 60 minutes to think. Practice solitude on a regular basis. Go into the silence. Whenever you practice solitude for more than 30 minutes, you activate your superconscious mind and trigger your intuition. You get an answer from the still, small voice within. To think better, take a pad of paper and write down every detail of the problem situation you are facing. Sometimes the right thing to do emerges as you write down the details. Aristotle once said that wisdom, the ability to make good decisions, is a combination of experience plus reflection. The more time that you take to think about your experiences, the more vital lessons you will gain from them. Another way to think more clearly is to go for a walk or exercise for 30 to 60 minutes. Very often when you are exercising, you'll get insights or ideas that help you to think better and make better decisions. You can talk your situation over with someone else who you like and trust and who is not emotionally involved. Very often, a different perspective can totally change your viewpoint. Always ask, in improving your thinking, what are my assumptions? What is it that you are assuming to be true about the situation? Alec McKenzie, the time management specialist, once wrote that errant assumptions, incorrect assumptions, lie at the root of every failure. So, what are your assumptions and what are you assuming to be true? And then here's another question. What if your assumptions were wrong? What if you were proceeding on the basis of false information? Always be open to the possibility that you could be completely wrong in your current course of action. Be open to doing something completely different. Be open to the possibility that you don't have all the facts or you don't have the correct facts. The second discipline that will make you success is the discipline of daily goal setting. This alone has transformed my life and the life of thousands of other people. You know that focus and concentration are the essential qualities for success. So start by asking, what do I really want to do with my life? Ask this question over and over until you get a clear answer. Imagine that you had $20 million cash but only 10 years to live. What would you immediately do differently in your life? Imagine that you have no limitations. Imagine that you could wave a magic wand and have all the time and all the money and all the education and all the experience and all the contacts you needed to achieve any goal. What would you do then? Now here's the key. Buy a spiral notebook and write in it every day. Begin by writing out 10 goals in the present, positive, and personal tense. 
begin each goal with the word I, followed by an action verb. For example, you could write, I earn X number of dollars by this particular date. Every day before you start off, rewrite your top 10 goals in the present tense, as though you had already achieved them and you were reporting on this success to someone else. Rewrite your goals on a clean page without looking back to the previous page. Rewrite them from memory. Watch how your goals grow, develop, and change over time as you rewrite them each day. Many people have said that this discipline of daily goal setting has transformed their lives and far faster than they had ever imagined. Yesterday I was giving a talk in Galveston, Texas. The man who introduced me stood up and said, I have to tell you about my experience with Brian Tracy, and he was holding up a tattered spiral notebook. I mean, it was just all beat to pieces. He said, when I first met Brian, he told me to write down my goals every day. He said, I started doing that. He said, it changed my life completely, and he waved his spiral notebook, almost falling apart, and he said, and I achieved every goal I ever wrote. He said, I've never seen anything more powerful in my whole life. So you can do it yourself. That's a great discipline. The third discipline is the discipline of daily time management. The rule is that every minute spent in planning saves 10 minutes in execution. The more you plan, the better you use your time, and the more you accomplish. Now imagine this. If you were to spend 10 to 12 minutes each morning, which is all it takes to plan a day, you will save 120 minutes or two hours each day in accomplishing your goals. If you save two hours each day, that's 25% increase in productivity by the very act of planning your day in advance. So begin by making a list of everything that you do. The best time to write your daily list is the night before so that your subconscious can work on it while you sleep. Organize the list by priority before starting work. Go through and look at all the things you have to do and pick what's most important and what's less important. Practice the 80-20 rule which says that 80% of your results come from 20% of your activities. What are those most valuable activities? Use the ABCDE method to set priorities. This is based, as we talked before, on considering the consequences of doing or not doing a particular task. An A task is something you must do. There are serious consequences for non-completion. A B task is something you should do. There's only mild consequences for non-completion. A C task is something that's nice to do, but it doesn't matter whether you do it or not. A D task is something that you delegate, and you delegate everything possible, and an E task is something that you eliminate, and you eliminate everything you can to free up more time. Once you've written A, B, C, D, or E by your tasks, go through and organize your list by A1, A2, A3, and then B1, B2, B3, and so on, and then start on your A1 task first thing in the morning. Once you start on your A1 task, discipline yourself to concentrate single-mindedly on that task until it's 100% complete. Now here's what we know. The discipline of good time management spreads to all your other disciplines. It has immediate payoff in improved results and long-term payoff in terms of the quality of your life work. The next discipline, the fourth discipline, is the discipline of courage. Courage requires that you make yourself do what you should do that you deal with your fears rather than avoiding them or running away from them. Now, the biggest obstacle to success in life, as we talked about before, is the fear of failure. 
This is expressed in the feeling that I can't, I can't. But what we know is that courage is a habit developed by practicing courage whenever it is required. As Emerson said, do the thing you fear and the death of fear is certain. So your job is to make a habit of confronting your fears rather than avoiding them. What we have found is that when you confront the fear and move toward it, especially if it's another person or people or situation, the fear gets smaller and you become braver and more courageous. The actor Glenn Ford once said, If you do not do the thing you fear, the fear controls your life. Repeat the words, I can do it, I can do it, over and over again to build up your courage and confidence. These words cancel out your fears. Now, the starting point of developing the habit of courage is for you to identify one fear in your life and then discipline yourself to deal with it, to confront it, to do whatever it requires as quickly as you possibly can. The payoff for identifying a fear and confronting it is tremendous. It gives you the courage and confidence to go through your life and deal with other fear-inducing situations. Remember, the more you practice courage, the more you develop the habit of being completely unafraid. The fifth discipline for success is the discipline of excellent health habits. Your goal should be to live to be 100 in superb physical health. So design and imagine your ideal body. What would your body look like if it was perfect in every way? This becomes your goal. The key to health and fitness can be summarized in five words. Eat less and exercise more. Eat less and exercise more. So develop the discipline of exercising every day, even if all you do is go for a walk. Exercise is best done in the morning, immediately after you get up, before you have time to think about it. If you do this for 21 days, get up and get going, it will become part of your regular routine for the rest of your life. What I do, and what lots of other people do, by the way, is put their exercise clothes right next to the bed. So when they get up, they virtually step on them, and they put them on, and they start moving before they have a chance to think about it. Try it yourself. Here's another key to excellent health habits. Eliminate the three white poisons, which are flour, sugar, and salt. I met a gentleman just the other day who I've known for years, and he'd lost 30 pounds, and his clothes were hanging on him like a loose tent. And I said, good grief. I said, how did you lose all the weight? He said, I stopped eating the three white poisons that you've been talking about for years. That means you stop eating any product that has flour in it. No breads, no pastries, no pastas, no potatoes, nothing that is white. Just eliminating the white poisons will cause your weight to decline dramatically. Eliminate anything with sugar. No soft drinks, no desserts, no pastries, no pop, nothing. And finally, eliminate salt. Never put salt on anything. Virtually everything you eat has too much salt on it already. And I got a letter from a gentleman in Florida not long ago. He said he had listened to my programs. He had become very successful in his business. He was very happy except for one thing. He was about 30. He was 25 pounds overweight. It was hurting his self-image. It made him unattractive to members of the opposite sex, and it really bothered him. And then he listened to my program about the three white poisons. He said that made sense. He said over the next six months, he dropped the 25 pounds and never put it on again. His self-concept changed. His self-image improved. He felt more attractive to other people. He said, just eliminating those white poisons changed my life forever. Does it take discipline? Of course it does. Well, how do you do it? Well, eat more salads and eat lighter foods. 
Interesting, you can stuff your face with salads. You can pork out on salads if you like, and you cannot gain weight because salad is about 90% water and it fills your stomach to the brim. So just make a habit of starting to eat more salads and eat lighter foods. Instead of heavy steaks, eat lighter fish, which is a much lighter food, digests much more rapidly and gives you tremendous protein and nourishment. Eat before 6 p.m. and eat half portions. My wife and I have begun a little ritual, which we call salads at six, salads at six. And instead of eating later and later in the evening, we strive to eat salad at six o'clock because you don't need to eat very much in the evening and you want to eat at least three hours before you go to sleep. And so just eat a salad at six. If you get into the habit of doing this, you'll be astonished at how light you feel, how well you sleep, how much weight you lose, and a whole bunch of other good things. Now, another way to live to be 100 is to get regular medical and dental checkups. My good friend Harvey McKay asked me one day, he said, have you had a medical checkup lately? And I said, well, no, I went a few years ago, but I'm in great shape. He said, Brian, I just had a medical checkup and I found something that they were able to take care of immediately. He said, if I had waited five years and gone back, he said, they'd have had to arrange for my funeral. He said, regular medical checkups will add eight to 10 years to your life because today they can find things that can be fatal and they can find them years in advance and eliminate them quickly. I've had a full medical checkup every year since that advice. And you should do the same thing. Have your teeth checked on a regular basis. There's a very close correlation between teeth health, gum health, and longevity. So take really good care of your teeth. Use the Michael Jordan method when it comes to health habits. Just do it. Just get on with it. Instead of putting it off, procrastinating, delaying, have the discipline to get on with it. Remember, you're the most precious person in your entire world. Take really good care of yourself. The sixth discipline that will help you is the discipline of regular saving and investing, which we talked about when we talked about money and making a million. Resolve today to get out of debt, stay out of debt, and become financially independent. Make a decision to do it. No more wishing and hoping and praying. Just get on with it. Your goal and everyone's goal is to achieve financial independence as soon as possible in life. This requires continuous financial discipline with every dollar you earn. The key is for you to save 10%, 15%, and even 20% of your income throughout your life. Because you're probably in debt already, begin by saving 1% of your income and then discipline yourself to live on the other 99% until this becomes a habit. Increase the amount of monthly savings to 2%, 3%, and eventually 10% and 15%. Discipline yourself to live on the balance. The way you do this, by the way, is you go down to the bank and open a new bank account and it's called your financial freedom account. It's a savings account. And then every day when you come home, take your extra change and extra cash and put it in a fruit jar on your dresser or in the kitchen. Let's say that you earn $3,000 a month. Well, 1% of that is $30. So every day you put $1 into the jar. At the end of each month, you go down and put it into the account. Every time you get some spare cash, put it into the account. Every time you get a rebate or a discount or a check, put it in the account. Just keep throwing all your extra money into that account and letting it grow. And the most amazing thing is it will start to grow far faster than you can imagine today, but it begins with you opening the account and putting something in to get it started. Now, a critical thing about regular saving and investing is for you to rewire your thinking from I enjoy spending to I enjoy saving. You see, when you were a child and you received money, 
the very first thing you did is you thought of going out and buying candy. And as an adult, you are still conditioned to that childhood response. So when you receive money, you think of going out and buying adult candy, going on a trip, buying clothes, getting a car, going to a restaurant. Most people, when you ask them, what would you do if you got a whole pile of money? They say, oh, I'd go here and I'd do there and I'd spend this and I'd buy that. Their first reaction is to blow the money. So what you do is you change your thinking from I like spending to I love saving. I love putting money away. I love looking at that money growing and accumulating every month. And pretty soon you change your whole mindset and you start to think like financially successful people. Delay and defer major purchases for 30 days or more. Sometimes when you put off a purchase that you were really keen to get into for a month or a few weeks, you lose all interest in buying it at all. Investigate before you invest. Two-thirds of investment success comes from avoiding mistakes. Let me repeat that. Two-thirds of investment success comes from avoiding mistakes. So invest as much time in studying the investment as you invested to earn the money in the first place. The one thing I've learned from wealthy people over the years is that every one of them does their due diligence. They study every single aspect and representation of an investment before they put a penny into it. They drag it out. They run it past their accountants. They make sure that everything is correct. This doesn't guarantee that it will be a successful investment, but it dramatically lowers the likelihood of your making a mistake. Pay cash for as many things as possible. Get rid of your credit cards. When you pay cash, the amount you are spending is far more visible and painful. It's interesting, many young people get into debt today because they get credit cards in the mail. And what they do is they look upon a credit card as free money. It's not real cash until the bills come home. And I was looking at a friend of mine who got into serious trouble the other day, and you know how much he was paying? He had zero interest for the first month. And it was big, zero interest, little small first month. Second month, 31% plus penalties on his credit card. I was listening to a financial expert talking the other day. She said that if you have a $2,000 debt on your credit card and you make the minimum payment and it continues to grow at 24 to 31% interest, it will take you nine years to pay it off. Nine years. People have no idea how serious credit card debt can be. Remember what W. Clement Stone said, if you cannot save money, the seeds of greatness are not in you. If you cannot save money, if you cannot discipline yourself to spend less than you earn, then the seeds of greatness are not in you. But if you can, you can accomplish remarkable things in your financial life. Now, the seventh discipline is the discipline of hard work. Your goal is to develop a reputation for being a hard, hard worker. As Thomas Jefferson said, the harder you work, the luckier you get. The average work week in America, they say, is 40 hours. Actually, it's 32 hours. Why is that? Because people are at work officially for eight hours, but they have one hour or more off for lunch and coffee breaks. So the average work week is 32 hours. However, the average person wastes 50% of the workday in idle chit-chatting with coworkers, extended coffee breaks and luncheons, personal business, reading the newspaper, and surfing the internet. So here's the rule for success. Work all the time you work. When you go to work, work. Imagine that this is work time. This is not play time. This is not school time. This is not social time. It's work time. And you put your head down and you go to work and you work all day long. 
If you do this, you will double your productivity, performance, and output, you will double your income, and you will become financially successful. To lengthen your workday, start one hour earlier and immediately get to work. If you come in one hour earlier, you'll just simply beat all the traffic, and you'll have one full hour to get your day started, to get your critical jobs under control, to make your phone calls, to do your plans, because there's nobody there to interrupt you. Then, work harder through your lunch hour, all day long. Don't waste time. Most people think about work as an extension of school, where you go and you talk to your friends and you hang around in class and you go and have lunch and you drink coffee and socialize afterwards and so on. No, no, work time is work time. And the better you do your work, the greater control you'll have over your life. Work one hour later. Be the last to leave. Use this time after everybody goes to wrap up all your work and to plan your next day. I remember I went to work for a large conglomerate headed by a chairman who worked very hard. At 5 o'clock, the place cleared out as though there was a bomb scare. But I kept on working till 5.30, 6 o'clock, and one day I had a question I went down the hallway. He was the only other person working, this head of this $800 million conglomerate. So I went in and I asked him, how's everything going? He said, great. I said, is there any way I can be of service to you? And he said, well, you know, I've got this and I don't have time to take care of it. Could you do that for me? And I said, sure. So I took it and I did it immediately. And the next day I went down, he was still there, and we sat and chatted. And over the next year, I would go down and spend 30 to 60 minutes at the end of each day with him. And each time he gave me new responsibilities. And would I do this and would I do that? Would I take care of this? Before the dust had settled at that company, I was running three divisions. I had 65 people under my control. I was being paid five times what I had started earning a year before. My whole life changed when I started to work as hard as the big guy. So it's really important, be the last to leave, and you'll find that all your top people are still there doing their extra work as well. Three extra hours of work. Start an extra hour early, work through lunch, and work an extra hour later will translate into six to eight hours of additional productivity. It will make you the most productive person in your company. Keep asking, what is the most valuable use of my time right now? Whatever your answer, work on that every hour of every day. As your priorities change, shift and start working on what is now the most valuable use of your time. Now, what is the greatest time waster in the world of work? The answer is other people. And what do other people do is they want to talk. They want to chat. They don't have much going on in their lives, so they want to have a little chat with you. So if somebody gets you distracted, comes in or interrupts you, you have to say to them, well, thanks for coming in, but I've got to get back to work back to work, back to work. If you find yourself working and you get distracted, you say, I'd love to talk to you, but I've got to get back to work, back to work. And be known as the person throughout the company who's always got to get back to work. And people will stop bothering you and taking up your time. Now, here is a great discipline, number eight, the discipline of continuous learning. Remember to earn more, you must learn more. Jim Rohn's famous for saying that, Work at least as hard on yourself as you do on your work. Read in your field 30 to 60 minutes each day. This will translate into one book per week, 50 books per year. Listen to audio programs in your car as you drive from place to place. This will amount to an additional 500 to 1,000 hours per year. Attend seminars and take courses given by experts in your field. One idea from one course can save you years of hard work. The greatest test of self-discipline is when you persist in the face of adversity and you drive yourself forward to complete your tasks 
no matter how you feel. Courage has two parts. The first part is the courage to begin, to start, to launch forward with no guarantee of success. The second part of courage is the courage to endure, to persist when you feel discouraged and tired and you want to quit. But here's what we've found, is your persistence is your measure of your belief in yourself and in your ability to succeed. The more you believe in the goodness and rightness of what you are doing, the more you'll persist. And the more you persist, the more you'll tend to believe in yourself and in what you're doing. The principles are reversible. Persistence is actually self-discipline in action. Persistence is self-discipline in action. You demonstrate your self-discipline when you persist, when you feel like quitting or giving up. Self-discipline leads to self-esteem, a greater sense of personal power, which leads to greater persistence, which leads to even greater self-discipline in an upward spiral. Napoleon Hill said that persistence is to the character of man or woman as carbon is to steel. You actually make yourself into a better, stronger person by persisting when you feel like quitting. You take complete control over the development of your own character. Eventually, you become unstoppable. The benefits of practicing self-discipline in every area of your life are many. Number one, the habit of self-discipline virtually guarantees your success in life, both with yourself and with others. Number two, you'll get more done, faster, and of higher quality with discipline than with any other skill. Number three, you will be paid more and promoted faster wherever you go. Number four, you'll experience a greater sense of self-control, self-reliance, and personal power. Number five, self-discipline is the key to self-esteem, self-respect, and personal pride. Number six, the greater your self-discipline, the greater your self-confidence, and the lower will be your fear of failure and rejection. Nothing will stop you. And number seven, with self-discipline, you will have the strength of character to persist over all obstacles until you eventually succeed. Begin today to practice self-discipline in every area of your life. Persist in this practice until self-discipline comes to you as automatically and as easily as breathing in and breathing out. When you become a completely self-disciplined person, your future will be guaranteed. No matter who you are or what you're doing, every person in an organization and in life experiences problems, difficulties, unexpected reversals, and crises that knock you off balance and often threaten your very survival. It's estimated that every business has a crisis every two to three months that, if not dealt with quickly and effectively, can threaten the survival of the enterprise. Each person has a crisis as well, personal, financial, family, or health, every two or three months that can also knock you off center and completely disconcert your life. But when the going gets tough, the tough get going. It is only in crunch time that you demonstrate to yourself and others what you are really made of. As the Greek philosopher Epictetus once said, circumstances do not make the man, they merely reveal him to himself and to others as well. Between 1934 and 1961, the historian Arnold Toynbee wrote his 12-volume series, Study of History, in which he examined the rise and fall of 26 civilizations over 3,000 years, 
and for it he received the Nobel Prize. Much of what he discovered in the life cycle of those empires is applicable to the rise and fall of businesses and industries, large and small, and to individuals. The lessons he discovered also apply to your personal life. Toynbee found that every civilization began as a small tribe or group of people that were suddenly faced with a challenge from the outside, usually an attack from hostile tribes. In order to deal effectively with this external threat, the leader and the tribe had to immediately reorganize and respond effectively to the problem in order to survive. If the leader and the tribe made the right decisions and took the right actions, the tribe would rise to the challenge, defeat the enemy, and in the process, grow and become stronger. But in growing and becoming stronger, the tribe would bump into or trigger confrontation with another larger hostile tribe, thereby creating another challenge. As long as the leader and the tribe continue to rise to overcome the inevitable challenges confronting them, they would continue to survive and grow. What Toynbee also found was that civilizations continued to grow as long as they met the challenges that they were facing from the outside, and every civilization began to decline when it could no longer rise to the challenge. Toynbee called this the challenge-response theory of civilization. These principles apply to your personal life as well. From the time you start in business, you will be confronted with problems, difficulties, temporary failures, and challenges of all kinds. No sooner will you solve one problem than you'll be confronted with another, often larger and more complicated. Your personal level of responsibility determines your survival, success, health, happiness, and prosperity. Everything is contained in your response. Now here's the interesting thing that Toynbee found, that the challenges came unbidden, that nobody could anticipate them or could prepare for them. The only part of the equation that you could control was the response to the challenge. And in the response is everything. As they say, it is not what happens to you, but how you deal with what happens to you that counts. The only way that you can realize your full potential and become everything you are capable of becoming is by dealing with crunch time effectively. The only way that you can achieve all your goals is by responding and reacting effectively to the inevitable crises of day-to-day -day life. The good news is that you have within you right now everything you need to deal with any problem or crisis you will ever face. There's no problem that you cannot solve by applying your intelligence and creativity to finding the solution. There's no obstacle that you cannot overcome or get around if you are determined and persistent enough. So here are some of the rules for surviving and thriving when you experience crunch time. Number one, stay calm. When you find yourself in crunch time, when you experience a sudden setback or reversal, your very first job is to seize control of your thoughts and feelings and make sure that you perform at your best. The natural tendency when things go wrong is for you or anyone else to react or overreact in a negative way. You can become angry or upset or afraid. The stressful thoughts and negative emotions immediately start to shut down major parts of your brain, including your neocortex, the thinking part of your brain, which you use to analyze, assess, solve problems, and make decisions. If you don't consciously assert mental and emotional control immediately in crunch time when things go wrong, you will automatically resort to the fight or flight reaction. You will start to react emotionally because you won't have the capacity to think calmly and clearly. So the starting point of staying calm in a crisis 
is for you to refuse to react automatically and unthinkingly. Imagine that everyone is watching. Imagine that every situation is a test to see what you're truly made of. Imagine that everyone is waiting to see how you will respond. The way that you keep yourself calm is resolve to set a good example, to be a role model for others, to demonstrate the correct way to deal with a major problem as if you were giving a lesson. Now, the primary source of negative emotions is frustrated expectations. You expected a thing to happen in a particular way, and something altogether different has happened. The two major forms of negative emotions triggered by a crisis or setback are our old enemies, the fears of failure, and the fears of rejection. Either of them can cause anger, depression, or even paralysis. You experience the fear of failure when you are dealing with the potential loss of money, customers, position, reputation, or the life and well-being of another person. You experience the fear of rejection, closely associated with fears of criticism or disapproval, when something goes wrong and you feel as if you are not capable or competent or that others will think poorly of you. Remember, your response to the crisis is everything. This is the test. Your inner dialogue determines your emotions in a crisis. Your explanatory style largely determines your thoughts, emotions, and subsequent actions. Your explanatory style is defined as the way that you explain or interpret things to yourself. Fully 95% of your emotions, positive or negative, are determined by the way you interpret the things that are happening around you. Although your mind can hold thousands of thoughts in a row, it can only hold one thought at a time. And you are always free to choose that thought at any moment. So here's an example. Instead of using the word problem or crisis to describe a situation, you should instead use the word situation. A problem is negative, but a situation is neutral. So you say, well, we are facing an interesting situation here. That keeps you and everybody calm. Even better, use the words challenge. This is an interesting challenge that we hadn't expected. Or even better, this is an opportunity to describe a setback or difficulty. Using these words, situation, challenge, opportunity, keeps your mind positive and creative, and it keeps you in complete control. Keep yourself calm by refusing to catastrophize. Very few things are ever as bad as they seem initially. Keep yourself calm by asking questions of the other people involved and by listening patiently to the answers. Sometimes talking over the problem with a spouse or trusted friend will help immensely to keep you calm and controlled. It seems that within every problem you face, there is the seed of an equal or greater benefit or advantage. When you discipline yourself to look for the good in a situation, to seek the valuable lessons that the situation or crisis might contain, you automatically remain calm, positive, and optimistic. Number two is be confident in your abilities. The natural reaction to an unexpected reversal of fortune is for you to feel stunned, shocked, and angry, as if you had just been punched in the emotional solar plexus. This is normal and natural, but you must remember that you have the ability to rise to any challenge. Talk to yourself positively and rebuild your self-confidence. Say things like, I like myself, I like myself, I like myself. I can handle anything. I can handle anything that comes along. You can neutralize the negative feelings triggered by the fear of failure by repeating over and over to yourself, I can do it, 
I can do it. I can do this. I can take care of this. Talk to yourself in a positive way. Tell yourself that you can do anything that you put your mind to. Tell yourself that there is no problem that you cannot solve. There's a wonderful way to deal with any crisis or problem, and it's called the Worry Buster Formula. Use the Worry Buster Formula in every situation. It consists of four parts. First, define the problem clearly, preferably in writing. Most problems can be solved if they are clearly defined at first. Remember in medicine they say, accurate diagnosis is half the cure. So what I will often do when we have a challenge in our company, I'll sit people down and say, all right, what exactly is the situation? And we will write it on a flip chart or a whiteboard. And as we write it, people say, well, no, that's not exactly that, or, or what about this? And we will keep writing it until the situation is written out clearly. Once it's written out clearly, in 50% of cases, there's an obvious solution and we're back to work. Second, ask yourself, what is the worst possible outcome of this problem? What is the worst possible thing that can happen? Then you look at everything that could happen. You could lose your money, lose your time, lose your customer, lose your business. In other words, identify the worst thing that can happen, clearly and honestly. Third, resolve to accept the worst should it occur. Say, all right, if this occurs, it won't kill me. Once you've decided to accept the worst, your mind becomes clear and calm, and you can begin thinking about the future because all your stress is gone. And fourth point in the Worry Buster formula, begin immediately to improve upon the worst. Begin immediately to make sure that the worst doesn't happen. What can you do right now to resolve this situation? Whatever it is, concentrate single-mindedly on reducing the worst possible consequences, and you're back in complete mental control of the situation. The only real antidote to worry is purposeful action in the direction of your goals. Self-confidence and self-esteem comes from a feeling of forward motion toward your goals. Get so busy working on the solutions to your problems that you don't have time to worry about what has happened, especially things that you cannot change. Number three, dare to go forward. The most common quality of leaders throughout the ages is the quality of vision. Leaders have a clear, exciting vision of where they want to go and what they want to accomplish sometime in the future. The second most common quality of leaders is courage. The fact is that everyone is afraid. We all have fears of different kinds, small and large, hidden and exposed. As Mark Twain said, courage is not lack of fear, but control of fear, mastery of fear. The worst effect of the fear of failure is that it can cause paralysis. People go into a state of emotional shock, like a deer caught in the headlights. Emerson once wrote, If you would become a success, you must resolve to confront your fears. If you do the thing you fear, the death of fear is certain. You develop courage in yourself by facing your fears and doing the things that you are most afraid to do. In business and in personal life, the most prevalent fear is the fear of confrontation. You have to develop the courage to confront the difficult people in your life and to resolve the situation. Fortunately, courage can be developed by acting courageously. When you do something you fear, you feel more courageous. In life, the courage follows the courageous behavior. As Emerson wrote, do the thing and you will have the power. An old man once said to his grandson, act boldly and unseen forces will come to your aid. The author, Dorothea Brand, once wrote that the most important advice she ever received was this, act as if it were impossible to fail and it shall be. 
There are two parts of courage. The first is the courage to launch, to begin, to step out in faith with no guarantee of success. The second part of courage is the courage to endure, to persist in the face of disappointment and temporary failure. Number four, get the facts. Perhaps the number one reason for success in life is clarity about who you are, what you want, and the details of the situation you are facing. Jack Welch, president of General Electric, said that the most important of all leadership principles was what he called the reality principle. The reality principle is defined as facing the world as it is rather than you wish it would be, dealing with the situation as it is rather than you wish it were. In any difficult situation, begin by asking, what's the reality? If something has happened, especially if it is a past event that cannot be changed, it falls into the categories of facts. Harold Janine, the executive who built IT&T into a $560 billion international conglomerate, said that the most important element to solving problems is to get the facts. You must get the real facts, he said, the true facts, not the alleged facts, the assumed facts, the hoped-for facts, or the imagined facts. Whenever you face crunch time in your life or business, call a timeout in the game and focus on getting all the information you can about the situation. Ask questions and listen carefully to the answers. What is the situation exactly? What has happened? How did it happen? When did it happen? Where did it happen? What are the facts? How do we know the facts are accurate? Who is involved? Who is responsible for doing or not doing certain things? If something has happened, especially if it is a past event that cannot be changed, it falls into the category of facts. Never worry or become upset about a fact, about something you cannot change. During the process of fact-finding, resist the temptation to become angry or to blame others for their mistakes and shortcomings. Focus instead on understanding the situation and determining the specific actions you can take rather than apportioning blame to those who are involved. Two of the best questions you can ask in any crisis are, what are we trying to do and how are we trying to do it? What are our assumptions in this situation? What if our assumptions are wrong? If we were wrong in one of our major assumptions, what would that mean? What would we have to do differently? Never assume that you have all the information and that the information you have is correct. Do not confuse correlation with causation. The natural tendency of most people is to jump to conclusions too quickly. In many cases, when two events happen at the same time, People assume that one event is the cause of the other. Very often, two events occur simultaneously, but neither event has anything to do with the other event. Assuming causation between the two can lead to confusion and poor decision-making. Don't let this happen to you. Number five, take control. When things go wrong, your natural tendency will be to respond with negativity, fear, and anger. Whenever you feel hurt or threatened by loss or criticism, you react to protect yourself with the fight-or-flight response. As a leader, however, your first job is to take firm control over your mind and emotions and then to take control over the situation in that order. Leaders focus on the future, not the past. They focus on what can be done now to resolve the problem or improve the situation. They focus on what is under their control their next decisions and actions, 
and you must do the same. When a company gets into serious trouble, the board will often fire the existing president and bring in a turnaround specialist. The turnaround specialist immediately takes complete control of the organization. He centralizes all decision-making in his office. He takes control of all expenditures, right down to signing every check so that he knows exactly what monies are going out of the company and to whom. He then acts boldly and often ruthlessly, making whatever hard decisions are required and doing whatever is necessary to save the company. To be your own turnaround specialist, the first thing you must do is to accept 100% responsibility for yourself and everything that happens from this moment forward. Leaders accept responsibility and take charge. Non-leaders avoid responsibility and pass things off on to others. Especially, you must keep yourself positive and focused. You do this by reminding yourself with these words, I am responsible. I am responsible. Or as Harry Truman said, the buck stops here. I'm the one in charge. Say to yourself, if it's to be, it's up to me. Above all, refuse to blame anyone for anything. As soon as you stop blaming other people for what has happened and take responsibility for the future, your negative emotions cease. Your mind becomes calm and clear, and you begin to make better decisions. The psychologist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross became famous writing about the various stages that a person goes through in dealing with a death in the family. The five stages of grief that she identified are denial, anger, blame, depression, acceptance, and resurgence, or taking control. Your first reaction to a major setback will often be denial. You'll be shocked and feel that this cannot be happening. Your first reaction will be to shut it out and hope that it's not true. The second stage in dealing with a major setback is anger. Your natural tendency will be to lash out at people and organizations who you feel are responsible for this financial or personal problem that you are experiencing. The third stage of dealing with death or disappointment is blame. In business, it's quite common for a witch hunt to begin to determine who exactly is to blame and for what. This behavior satisfies the deep need that many people have to find someone guilty in some way whenever something goes wrong. The fourth stage in dealing with disappointment is depression. The reality sets in that an unavoidable and irreparable setback has occurred. The damage has been done. Money has been lost. The feeling of depression is often accompanied by feelings of self-pity, of being a victim. You often feel let down cheated, or betrayed by others. You feel sorry for yourself. The fifth stage of dealing with difficulties is acceptance. You finally reach the stage where you realize that the crisis has happened and that it is irreversible, like a broken dish or spilled milk. You come to terms with the loss and begin to look toward the future. The final stage in dealing with a major setback is resurgence. This is where you take complete control of yourself and the situation and begin thinking about what you can do next to solve the problem and move forward. Now, everyone goes through these five stages. It's quite normal and natural. Denial, anger, blame, depression, acceptance, and resurgence. The only question is, how quickly do you go through these stages? The mark of the mentally healthy person is his or her level of resilience in response to the inevitable ups and downs of modern life. As Charlie Jones, the uh, great speaker, said, it's not how far you fall, but how high you bounce 
that counts. Recognize that everyone makes mistakes. Things go wrong all the time. Even the best and most competent people do foolish things occasionally, as do you. If someone else has dropped the ball, instead of being angry or punishing, treat the person with kindness and compassion. Always try to assume the very best of intentions on everyone's part and then focus on solving the problem and taking action. Number six, cut your losses. According to the Manager Institute, the most important quality necessary for success in business in the 21st century is flexibility. With the explosion in knowledge and technology, combined with the rapid growth of competition, products, services, processes, markets, and customers are changing at a more rapid rate today than ever before. Perhaps the most important tool that you can use to remain flexible and adaptable in turbulent times is called zero-based thinking. In zero-based thinking, you stop, stand back, and you look at your business objectively, as though you were an outsider looking in. You ask this question, Is there anything that I am doing today that, knowing what I now know, I wouldn't get into again today if I was starting up again? Discipline yourself to ask and answer this question honestly on a regular basis. Whenever you ask the question, knowing what I now know, you see things in a different light. Is there any product or service that, knowing what you now know, you would not offer or bring to the market today if you had to do it over again? If there is, your next question must be, how do I discontinue this product or service and how fast? Management expert Peter Drucker calls this the process of creative abandonment. You must be prepared to abandon any product or service that is draining time and resources away from the sale and delivery of more popular and profitable products and services. Is there any activity or business process that, knowing what you now know, you wouldn't start up again today? Is there any expense, method, or procedure in the operations of your business that, knowing what you now know, you wouldn't start again? Is there any person in your business who you would not hire back again today, knowing what you now know? Is there anyone in your business who you would not promote, assign, or give a particular responsibility to, knowing what you now know? Personally, is there any relationship or situation in your personal life that, knowing what you now know, you wouldn't get into again today if you could do it over? Another way to cut your losses is to imagine that you arrived at work one morning only to find that your entire business had burned to the ground. Fortunately, your staff was safe and standing around in the parking lot watching the building as it was consumed in flames. As it happens, there were offices available across the street that you could move into immediately and restart your business or career. If this happened to you, what products and services would you immediately start producing for sale? And what products or services would you not start up again today? What customers would you contact immediately? What business activities would you engage in first? And especially, what business activities, processes, and expenses would you not get into again today if you were starting over? If ever you would downsize, discontinue, eliminate anything or anyone to save your business, you should do it immediately when you face crunch time. Don't delay. Cut off all non-essential expenses and eliminate all non-essential activities. Get back to basics. Focus on the 20% of your products, services, and people that account for most of your results. Now, number seven, manage the crisis. In a fast-changing, turbulent, highly competitive environment, you will have a crisis of some kind every two or three months. This will be a business crisis, a financial crisis, 
a family crisis, a personal crisis, or even a health crisis. The crisis is the critical moment in your business or life. This is the testing time. Whatever you choose to do or fail to do can be extraordinarily important and have significant positive or negative consequences on the future of your business or your personal life. When the crisis occurs, there are four things that you should do immediately. First, stop the bleeding. Practice damage control. Put every possible limitation on losses. In business, you must preserve cash at all costs. Second, gather information. Get the facts. Speak to the key people and find out exactly what you're dealing with. Third, discipline yourself to think only in terms of solutions about what you can do immediately to minimize the damage and solve the problems. And fourth, become action-oriented. Think in terms of your next step. Often, any decision is better than no decision at all. One of the key strategies for business and personal success is called crisis anticipation. You practice crisis anticipation by looking ahead into the future, 3, 6, 9, and 12 months, and asking, what could happen to disrupt my business and personal life? Of all the things that could happen, what are the worst possible things that could happen sometime in the future? Refuse to play games with your own mind. Refuse to wish, hope, or pretend certain things could never happen to you. Develop an, if this happened, then what, mentality. Even if there was only a small probability that something disastrous could occur, the superior thinker carefully considers all the possible consequences of that problem occurring and provides accordingly. Develop a contingency plan for possible emergencies and crises. What steps would you take if something went seriously wrong? What would you do first? What would you do second? How would you react? Look down the road into the future. Imagine what could happen, and then come back to the present to plan well in advance of the possible occurrence. To assure that the crisis does not repeat itself, after you've resolved the crisis for the first time, do a debrief on the situation. What exactly happened? How did it happen? What did we learn? What could we do to make sure it doesn't happen again? According to Stanford University, the most important quality of the top CEOs amongst the Fortune 1000 corporations was their ability to deal with a crisis when it occurred. How you manage the inevitable crisis is the true measure of your level of wisdom and maturity. Your ability to anticipate a crisis and to learn from a crisis is absolutely essential to your ability to deal with subsequent crises when they occur. So begin by identifying the three worst things that could happen in your business or financial life in the next year. What could you do today to minimize the damage from these crises? Identify the worst things that could happen in your personal and family life, and then take the steps to make sure that they don't happen. Apply zero-based thinking to every part of your business and personal life. Is there anything that you're doing today that you would not start up or get into again today knowing what you now know? Imagine that you could start your personal or business life over again today. What would you get into and what would you get out of? What would you start up and what would you let go of? Accept complete responsibility for the problem situation, whatever it is. Take command. Take charge. Get through the five stages of denial, anger, blame, depression, and resurgence as quickly as possible. Refuse to blame anyone for anything. Accept that people make mistakes. Focus on the solution and what can be done now to solve the problem rather than who did what and 
who is to blame. Be your own consultant. Take any problem that you are facing today and imagine that you have been hired to analyze it thoroughly and make recommendations for solutions to your client. Be calm and objective, like you are an outside advisor. Determine the reality of the problem situation by getting all the relevant facts. Focus first on understanding what has happened before rushing to a conclusion. An important thing that I've learned is that very often you don't have the right facts. Very often what appears to be a problem or a crisis is not that serious at all because you've only heard half the story and once you hear the rest of the story, well, it's not that big a deal. So take the time to investigate thoroughly before you react. Identify a person, situation, or action that you fear. Resolve to confront it immediately and get it behind you. Make a habit throughout your life of doing the things you fear and the death of fear is certain. Whatever decisions you would make if your survival was at stake, make them now. Don't delay. Your ability to deal effectively with inevitable crises of daily life is the true mark of your character and personality. The starting point of becoming more effective in dealing with crunch time is for you to visualize and imagine yourself as calm, cool, and collected in the face of any unexpected problem or reversal. See yourself in your mind's eye as if you were completely in charge of any situation. Then, when the situation arises unexpectedly, you will be mentally prepared to perform at your best. Remember, there's no problem that you cannot solve, no obstacle that you cannot overcome, and no goal that you cannot achieve by applying your mind to your situation. So never give up.